Newfoundland and Labrador is on the precipice of opening its doors to the rest of the country, and the Atlantic bubble already started July 3rd. Up to this point, we've been one of the safest places on the planet in the fight against COVID-19. It's a common observation that perhaps because we've had such effective public health interventions and we're sheltered from any outbreaks, we may be becoming a bit complacent. In today's show, we'll speak with medical experts in two epicenters and then our own chief medical officer, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald. With three health ministers since the start of the pandemic and leadership that does not promote public health protocols, Brazil's coronavirus cases have skyrocketed. But many believe Brazil should have been able to avoid this crisis. For a bit of background, Brazil has a public unified healthcare system which guarantees free access to all levels of healthcare services, from primary care to specialists for its citizens. In addition, over 25% of the population hold private health insurance, mostly through their employment. Professionals working in the healthcare system, including universities and public scientific institutions, have historically helped overcome crisis and produced sound public health responses, such as dealing with the Zika outbreak or the national responses to HIV and AIDS epidemics. Current statistics, though, show that Brazil has the world's second highest number of deaths from COVID-19 and bed occupancy rates of over 90% in three Brazilian states. So how did the country reach this point? Well, here to help explain the situation is Dr. Victor Castro Lima. He's an infectious disease physician working at two hospitals in Sao Paulo, Brazil, largely regarded as the epicenter of the outbreak in the country. Welcome to the show, Dr. Castro Lima. Hello, Mike. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure for me talking here from Brazil to you and sharing our experience uh, with you in Canada. I really appreciate it. And I think that for the folks that are listening to the show, tell us a bit about Sao Paulo and the hospital settings that you work in. Sao Paulo is the biggest city in Brazil. We have a population of 15 to 16 million people. And here we have a great number of hospitals. Uh, private hospitals and public hospitals in Brazil, we have a very strong public health system, including the biggest hospital in South America that is called Hospital das Clínicas uh, from University of Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo as Brazil have a great social difference. So we have some districts with very poor people and some districts with uh, rich people. So we can see this difference in our uh, health system also. So, so private hospitals that we have a good structure of equipment, of drugs and medicine, and other hospitals that don't have a good uh, structure and uh, with not a good uh, health system. Uh, São Paulo is the first city in Brazil that have a case of COVID-19. And until today, the city with the highest number of cases. So it's a very important city in the context of the pandemia here in Brazil. So the current status is that Brazil globally right now is, is one of the most challenged countries. Are there parts of the country uh, that are hit worst with this than other parts? Yeah, uh, Brazil is the second country in the world that has highest number of cases, almost one million and a half cases and more than 60,000 deaths until today. Uh, it's interesting that Brazil is a very big country, so different areas and different regions of the country were affected in different ways. Like in the north, we have states that don't have a big population and don't have a good health system. So 
So they have a great number of cases with a great impact in the health system, comparing with uh, some states of the South that have much more people and have a good health system, but don't have so many cases of the COVID-19. It's just an example uh, to show that different parts, depending on the number of people, the population of the state, the number of cases, and the structure of the health system of the state, we have great difference in the pandemia uh, here in Brazil. Today, well, we are observing an stabilization of the number of cases in the cities that were more affected in the beginning of pandemia, uh, like Sao Paulo, like some states like uh, Ceará, Amazonas, whereas in other states that were not so much affected in the beginning, like Minas Gerais and some states of southern Brazil, uh, we are observing an increase in the number of cases. And pro probably the second wave, the famous second wave in Brazil, will involve this state that were not so much affected in the beginning. And that's part of today's talk for us is that we've been relatively unaffected while certain parts of Canada have been very affected. Areas like Ontario and Quebec have had cases in the tens of thousands while we've had uh, less than uh, less than a thousand in our area, significantly less than a thousand. And so, you know, we may be facing some of these as we start to open up our, our province if we're not careful. Um, one of the things that I've noticed uh, in reporting is that a lot of countries are reporting increased case numbers among younger populations, people between 20 and 40 years old. Have you noticed any trends like this in the hospital cases you've seen? Um, during the pandemic, uh, we expect to see a case in all people, elder people, younger people. So we have observed a high number of cases in younger people, but including people that need to be hospitalized uh, and sometimes going to ICU. But uh, here we did not observe it, a great number of like critical cases, like uh, more severe cases in, in younger population. I think that uh, yeah, that's another thing important to to comment that uh, all the world testing more for COVID-19. So more diagnosis is being performed and there are a lot of people and young people that predominantly have uh, mild disease uh, with mild symptoms. So I think that we are diagnosing the disease in this population, but not necessarily uh, the disease is more severe in the, these people. Uh, in, our, uh, in our vision, see some cases uh, in younger people, but not severe cases in this population. In the day-to-day -day where you're working at two different hospitals, what does your typical day look like when you're working? Oh, the typical day changed a lot with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, first of all, a lot of wards are separated exclusively for COVID-19 patients. They need to be isolated and a lot of uh, restricted uh, rules were established to uh, precaution cautions uh, with the patients. So if you would like to enter you know, a COVID-19 um, area, you need to put a, a private clothes 
you need to put a specific mask, like PFF2 mask, uh, gloves, gowns, uh, be protected. And this patient could not stay with other person, like familiar person, stay with him. It, it's not allowed uh, to protect uh, health professionals, to protect other people and protect other patients. So we need to keep in touch along the day uh, with the the families of these patients. And it's important to remember the other patients that have uh, other health problems that not uh, COVID-19. So oncological patients, uh, patients that need to, to uh, do a surgical procedure. Uh, they, we, we need to, to have uh, to precautions with these patients also uh, to these patients did not acquire COVID-19 in the hospital. So all the, the structure needs to be changed and need to be adapted uh, with this new reality. We call the the new normal for the hospitals. That sounds like a hectic day, and I can understand that. There's a chance of somebody coming in for uh, some other procedure and, and acquiring COVID-19 if the hospital is inundated in the ICU with, with the cases. So it's definitely a risk for people. So why is it? that Brazil would have higher cases than other countries, you think? I think that uh, Brazil had the opportunity to see uh, how the epidemic occurred in China, in Europe, and in USA. And our authorities uh, did not prepare the country for the epidemic. Uh, Our most important authorities uh, did not give the real value for uh, the great problem we are facing now. So I think this is one of the main reasons to see Brazil today uh, in the second place in the world in the absolute number of the cases. I think that we were not prepared for the pandemic. Uh, people were not uh, completely prepared and informed about the consequence of the epidemic and now we are living unfortunately the the consequence of it that's very scary okay so you know we've been a place that's been relatively untouched by it people do not have a first-hand experience with it and so we can be afraid sometimes that we get complacent and then we forget it's there what advice would you give anybody in a place that's been safe so far to stay safe going forward yeah, I think that uh, uh, we are living a second moment of the, the epidemics. And here in Brazil, we are uh, seeing a lot of places with people going to the streets with no caution and with no care about uh, the spreading of the virus and spreading the virus for other people. Uh, we, we need to have very cautious with this situation because it's not controlled. It's very probable. Uh, the probability to occur a, a second wave in different parts of the world are very big. Our health system have a chance to to go to collapse, and so we need to to stay safe and to have all the the methods to protect ourselves and other people, people uh, that we we care about them. Uh, to protect everybody. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience today, Dr. Castro Lima. Um, it's uh, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to to share your experience with us. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. Uh, it's uh, 
was a pleasure for me to contribute and uh, good luck uh, for all people in Canada, uh, for you. And we stay safe and we expect that we can overcome all the situation better and better than we were years later. We'll be right back after this break. The state of Texas, and particularly Houston, is renowned for its hospitals and medical research. Texas, however, is losing its fight against the coronavirus. After only a 28-day shutdown starting late March, Governor Greg Abbott started reopening the state April 27th in an attempt to help the economy. These executive orders and state-level direction from Republican leaders often disagree with local guidelines in major cities, which were primarily Democratic. This led to confusion in the population and public health guidelines shifting as party lines took the lead. Texas cases have since spiked and created one of the U.S. epicenters and global hotspots for the virus. After a record 7,500 cases last Thursday, Texans were ordered to wear masks in public by the governor. He's also halted any further reopening, although the state is basically already reopened. With over 200,000 cases and an overburdened hospital system, we reached out to Marianne Phillips, who was born and raised in Collier's, Newfoundland. She's a clinical nurse manager in the Texas Medical Center. Marianne, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on today. So uh, I think you have a really interesting perspective about what's going on there. Uh, You're from Newfoundland, right? Yes, I am. Born and raised in Collier's, Newfoundland. And you moved down to the U.S. to do nursing and, and since have been working in Houston for a number of years, right? Yes. Yeah. I moved here back in um, 2012 and I've been nursing here ever since in Houston, Texas. I'm a clinical nurse manager in the postpartum unit of a high-risk hospital in the Texas Medical Center. And for uh, those of you who don't know, the Texas Medical Center is the largest medical center in the world. So quite an awesome place to work. A lot going on here. Actually, yeah, that's really important for people to understand. Like, Houston is renowned globally for its hospital system and and medical research, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a combination of private hospital systems as well as university-based hospital systems. I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, we have about 168 to 170 hospitals slash clinics in the Texas Medical Center. So you can imagine how much we, we see and do here in the run of a day. So it's quite amazing. Wow. Well, I spent a lot of time in Houston. I think a lot of Newfoundlanders have close ties to Houston from the oil and gas side of things, so it's something that's pretty familiar. But it's it's hitting close to home. Can you explain what's what's going on with the the COVID nineteen situation there? Well, honestly, we thought we were doing pretty good here in the Houston area, um, given we're such a large city in the United States. We were doing we were doing pretty good actually. We were averaging probably about two hundred cases a day in Houston and surrounding area, which. Considering the size of the city, that wasn't too, too bad. And then since Memorial Day, we've tenfold. We're about 2,000 cases a day now in the Houston area. So quite a significant increase. Not where we want to be, that's for sure. So that's why it's so important to talk about, you know, mask wearing, social distancing, you know, washing your hands. All those things are so, so important because I think, honestly, we let our guard down and this is where we're at right now. And it's, it's really not a great place to be. 
Well, there was some confusion, though, because I think that your governor was saying one thing and then the municipalities were saying another. And so public health guidelines were getting a little bit clouded for people. And and you guys ended up having 7,500 cases in one day in Texas. So they've changed again. Like they've been they've been very dynamic. Can you explain what's what's sort of been the root of that confusion? I think, honestly, Mike, like I said, we became very lax. We thought we were in the clear. I think businesses started opening up which was great, but I just think we needed to have stricter guidelines in place for mask wearing and social distancing because now we've totally gone back to our restaurants being closed back down to 50% from 75%. All of our bars are now closed again. We have a mandatory mask mandate where we wear masks anywhere in public. So all of these things, and social distancing, of course, and hand washing, so all of these things have had to come back in full effect due to the increase in these cases that we're seeing. And like I said, at Memorial Day, we had the city opening back up. We had our protests. So all of these things together, I think, just contributed to this crazy increase that we're seeing right now. And so once again, like I can't stress enough how important it is to, you know, wear masks, social distancing, because that is that is really the only way we're going to slow this spread. Yeah, I think that, you know, the public health guidelines have come out and it comes down to people to be able to follow them. So when you're looking at the cases, you know, everybody thought for a long time it was only going to affect the elderly. Are you seeing a difference in demographics? Are you seeing people of all ages being admitted to the hospital or having repercussions from COVID-19? Most definitely, Mike. I mean, honestly, COVID-19 has no barriers. I mean, it is, it's attacking everybody. I mean, honestly, the young, old, healthy, sick, pregnant, non-pregnant um, children, I mean, it is affecting everybody. So that's the, the other thing to remember. You know, just because you're young and you're healthy, you're not invincible to this disease. It's attacking everybody. And it's so new and there's so many unknowns that we just don't know how it's going to affect you and what the long-term effects are going to be. So once again, so important to remember to, to practice all those safety precautions because just because you're young and healthy and you think, oh, well, if I get it, I may just have a couple of symptoms or none at all and it'll be all good. We just don't know how it's going to affect you. It, it affects everybody differently, different types of symptoms, different types of outcomes. So you can't be careful enough. And across the community, I guess that's the big point of this now is that you're seeing a place where people are adhering to public health guidelines on different levels. And Newfoundland is opening the Atlantic bubble now, you know, and then potentially even opening up to the rest of the country in the next little while. Any advice you'd give people, you know, we've got alignment between our government and our public health policies, but what would what should people really know about this after you've seen the reality of what the, what the pandemic looks like firsthand? Like I said, Mike, I can't stress enough. I understand, you know, businesses have to open. I I fully support that and understand that. But you have to be careful. I mean, as an individual going to these businesses, you have to take precautions, even if those You know, businesses don't have certain rules in effect. I would caution everybody, please, please, please wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands. We were doing so well here and everybody kind of let their guard down. And now you can see where where we're at. So it's it's not just protecting, you know, yourself. It's protecting others because a lot of the cases that we do see across the community are asymptomatic people who are spreading it. So they're not even sick and they're spreading it to others. So you just don't know who's positive and who's not. So once again, I can't caution enough to wear your your mask, 
social distancing as much as possible. Um, and not just in public around strangers, around your own family and friends, because honestly, unless you know who every single person has been in contact with, there's no way to know if you're not exposed to the virus. So once again, protect yourself for sure. Well, that's great advice. I think it means extra coming from a Newfoundlander who's in a place that's one of the epicenters of the pandemic globally right now. And and if you're seeing that and that's the advice you're giving, then hopefully we all pay attention to it and heed it so that we can avoid making the same mistakes that maybe some of the communities made in your area. You guys are at a place right now where I feel like you're ahead of the game. You have the opportunity to make these changes and follow these practices and help decrease the risk of this spreading because honestly, it, it, it can happen overnight that it just spirals out of control. So while you have the chance, I would strongly encourage everybody to follow the proper precautions and just protect yourselves and one another. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've been really busy down there uh, trying to deal with all of this, but uh, it's awful nice to hear from somebody from back home who's in that situation. So thank you so much. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, and I hope everybody stays safe there. Awesome. We'll do our best. When we come back, I'll be talking one-on-one with Newfoundland and Labrador's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald, to see how COVID-19 is impacting us right here at home. The women who are Canada's Chief Medical Officers and are leading our response to the rapidly changing COVID-19 pandemic have been described as fierce advocates for public health with calm, expert, compassionate dispositions that increases their ability to influence change. We're very lucky to have Dr. Janice Fitzgerald at the helm here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We sat down for a one-on-one conversation to talk about the pandemic so far, what we need to do as citizens, and what we can expect over the coming months here at home. So welcome to the show, Dr. Fitzgerald. Thank you for having me. So I think people have an increased awareness of your role. You know, the entire province looks to you for guidance. You start every news conference and people hear all the new public health guidelines from you. So. What is the role of a chief medical officer? So by and large, a a chief medical officer of health is really the physician in the province that is responsible for looking after the health and safety of the population. So that can be in many different aspects of health. It doesn't have to be just with regard to infectious diseases, although that's where we tend to get the most traction. So my job is to provide advice to and guidance to officials who make the laws and rules and as well as to provide advice to um, other entities that may need that advice and uh, in addition to that we we monitor the population um, we do assessments to look at the health of the population and we conduct surveillance to see are there areas um, of concern with regard to health so we also have surveillance for infectious diseases so we do we do a lot in public health and the chief medical officer of health basically is the person who oversees that whole function of public health. And so our responsibility is basically to find inequities, to find disparities, to find concerns about health, and then to bring those concerns to the people who can help us ask why that's happening and to and then bring it to the people who might be able to do something about it to make it better. 
so your role has obviously changed with the pandemic. <laughs> so, because uh, I think that, that a lot of people wouldn't have known the full scope of everything, but how has it changed now that we're dealing with this? Well, certainly with the pandemic, of course, we've become much more focused on uh, dealing with an, one particular infectious disease that we've never seen before and that we're still learning a lot about. And so certainly we've taken a, a, a very communicable disease control slant to the job. And that's what most people are seeing me do all the time is trying to find ways to control that communicable disease. So a lot of the orders that we've had to implement, the fact that we implemented a you know, a public health emergency, that's not something that we've ever had to do before, um, that we've ever done before. And thankfully, we have this new legislation that allowed, it to, allowed us to do it this time. But you know, those uh, that's a very different role, I think, than, than we've seen the Chief Medical Officer of Health have in the past. But in addition to that, though, there's still a lot of things that we have to, you know, public health is still going on and, and there's lots of other things with healthcare that are still happening that we have to keep track of. So we are still following up on all of that. And in addition, we're also going to have to look at a lot of the unintended consequences that came from some of these measures that we put in place. And we recognize that 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 is something that we will have to to look at and try to minimize as much as possible as we go forward because we're still not out of the woods yet with regard to the pandemic itself. Right, so now that we've had a plan in place, there'll obviously be additional surveillance going forward and, and additional planning. How do you guys tackle that as a department? Um, so our public health team has, which is an incredibly efficient and, and wonderful team, it's small, but it's worked really, really hard through all of this, and I can't give them enough credit, honestly. So the team has gotten together, and, and we do have conversations on a, a federal, provincial, territorial level, so we're meeting regularly with uh, counterparts across the country, and there are you know recommendations that come from that group with regard to surveillance and how we should look at that. So we have a surveillance plan in place based on on that uh, rec- those recommendations from the Public Health Agency of Canada and the Special Advisory Committee. So we've developed our surveillance plan based on that. So we are going to be looking at you know several different indicators um, with regard to not just how many cases of COVID-19 we see or how quickly new cases are developing or anything like that, but we're also looking at indicators that indica- that tell us how well our contact tracing is working, mm-hmm. how much contact tracing we're able to do, how quickly, what's our turnaround time on tests, how quickly can we identify people, what's our capacity for ICU and for personal protective equipment, PPE. So there's, there's lots of indicators that we're using to try to help us decide what we need to do with regard to keeping things open or closing things or and what our actions have to be. So... Right. <clears throat> Not only how is the transmission of the disease, but also how, how capable are we of being able of to protect. Yeah. Right, exactly. So that's another question I think people have had. You know, I think the shutdown, people understand the shutdown was required to sort of flatten the curve, of course. But were there other measures or other reasons why a shutdown would be necessary, like educating the public or prepping the medical system? What else was occurring besides stopping the transmission person to person? Right. And, and yeah, that's a great question because there was a lot of things that were happening besides that shutdown. I mean, people see what happens to them personally, but they don't necessarily see what happens at the bigger picture. And, yes, yeah, so we were pre- preparing our uh, medical system to be able to, our healthcare system to be able to deal with that. So we had to reduce... Um, bed usage to make sure that we had the capacity to deal with an increase in cases should that happen. 
thankfully we were lucky here and so uh, we didn't run into overcapacity but that's not to say that that couldn't happen again and if we see a surge in the fall that may that we could get close you know so all of that was going on all the regional health authorities were working to make sure that they had enough capacity there was a lot of work being done um, to make sure that people who were in vulnerable situations were protected so uh, remote communities um, people who use shelters or are precariously housed people in other vulnerable situations that they were going to be able to be protected and um, identified should they develop cases and then what do we do with those um, uh, where do they go in situations you know especially if they're precariously housed so all of those kind of planning things were happening and additionally of course we did want to reduce the number of people who were out and about and interacting with each other because we knew that the more interactions you have with people the greater the chance there is for spread of this and really the the only way to do that was to stop the uh, the movement of people and that's what this accomplished and I think it gave people time and companies and businesses and governments and everybody time to sort of get their heads around how are we going to approach this in the days and months and hopefully not too many years to come <laughs> but you know certainly within the next uh, 12 to 18 months we're all going to have to think about how we do this differently and I think that shutdown did give people time to adjust and adapt and I think you know there were unintended consequences, but there are also positive unintended consequences as well, and that mm -hmm. some people realized that, uh, you know, working from home is not terrible, and uh, some companies realized that people could work effectively from home, and, and I think that's that's all, um, you know, could be positive in some ways. So. Yeah, and, you know, even on the physical activity side, yeah. walking was up 46% oh, across North America. It was, it was <laughs> unbelievable the difference I found just, uh, uh, we walk in our neighborhood, and just the number, the sheer number of people I actually saw walking around, it was, it was really quite heartening to see. I thought, well, that's one positive uh, that's come out of this, so hopefully people can keep it up. That's right, and everybody knows how to cook sourdough. Yeah. <laughs> So how do you work with the other chief medical officers across the country and, and what's the importance of common messaging? So we, um, so, uh, back in the beginning when all this started, the, we have what they call a council of the chief medical officers of health, which meets once a month on a regular basis just to discuss some of the public health issues and concerns that are um, coming up across the country. Um, so that's a, a regular thing that we do and, and very useful and very helpful um, and included in that, of course, is the public health agency and Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Tam and uh, Dr. New. So um, that... Um, that sort of group is already in place. So what happens in a pandemic, if need be, um, so we have this all response uh, plan, and, and if need be, a special advisory committee can be struck, which includes all of the chief medical officers of health and people from Health Canada and the Public Health Agency and, and other groups to that, and its focus is to actually look at the management of whatever the issue is. So there's one struck on opioid, the opioid crisis. There's also this one. Um, and there's been other things in the past as well. So we now meet regularly. Uh, for a while we were meeting three times a week. Um, now we're meeting twice a week. And, uh, you know, we're focusing at the moment, of course, we're focusing on reopening and long-term planning and what we're going to do in the future. Um, and uh, that group also talked about shutting down and the measures we had to do for that. We talked about the reopening process and what had to be in place for that. And uh, I'm sure once a vaccine becomes available, we're going to be talking about vaccines and how that rolls out. So that group meets regularly. We discuss things regularly. Common messaging is 
probably the, the priority and that that's the overriding communication of all of it is that we've got to have some common messaging here. The public needs to be hearing the same thing. We're a huge country, um, you know, and, and very different regionally. So we need to make sure that the message that's getting out there is the same. The basic message is the same. Obviously, there's going to be some local context to that. Uh, even within our province, there has to be local context to that messaging. But right now, it's, uh, you know, it's really about the same messaging going out at all. We'll be right back after this break. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I'm pleased to have the, our chief medical officer with us again today. I will now turn it over to Dr. Fitzgerald for today's update. Let's get back to our interview with Dr. Fitzgerald. Why do you think we fared so well here? And, um, and then the second part of that, now that we have an Atlantic bubble, um, why is it necessary to open up an Atlantic bubble? So I think we fared well here. I, uh, there's a couple of things. I, I think people listened. I, I, I think we had the benefit of seeing things happen elsewhere in the country. Things tend to go west to east. The flu tends to come to the country west to east, starts in BC first. We're usually a couple of months behind before we see our big outbreaks. The same sort of thing happened here. And, and I think, uh, so we had the benefit of seeing what happened in Ontario, seeing some of the things that happened in BC. And, and because of that, and because we were meeting regularly, you know, we were able to learn from those experiences and to put some things in place based on some of the learnings that came from their experiences. So I think that's important. I think we did uh, introduce self-isolation early. I think that made a difference and not just because we knew in Newfoundland that while, yes, international travel was a risk, absolutely, as we started seeing cases increase in other areas of the country, uh, we knew that a lot of our travel, if not most of it, was coming from other parts of the country. And so that's why we put self-isolation in place. And I think... um, I think that certainly has had some benefit. We're lucky in that sense that we could do that. We're smaller and, you know, it makes it um, uh, makes it a little bit easier in some ways. And we have limited ports of entry, I yes, suppose, of course, right? right? You know, so right. that makes it that makes a difference. So not to disparage any other province, uh, bigger provinces, it would be much harder to, mm-hmm. uh, to implement some of the things like that. Um, when uh, we started reopening and we realized that, you know, importation risk was our biggest risk at that point, once we got things under control with our own outbreak here, that's when we thought we needed to put... Um, uh, the travel restrictions in place to ensure the risk of uh, importation was reduced. And obviously, when we put those travel restrictions in place, it was it was put in at a time when there were higher rates elsewhere in the country. And uh, we knew that when we put that in, we were going to be watching those rates closely. We were going to be watching what was happening in the rest of the country closely. And when it changed to a point where we felt it was safe to lift those restrictions, then we would. So obviously, with uh, Atlantic Canada, you know, we're seeing certainly in in over the last month and even longer for PEI, for example, you know, there's been very few cases uh, in each of the provinces. And I think that when we apply these measures that our Public Health Protection and Promotion Act, uh, that's our act that we use to be able to put these special measures in place, that says that we have to apply these special measures in the least restrictive way possible. So if you don't have the evidence that supports keeping a measure in place, then you can't really keep a measure in place. So, uh, you know, looking at the Atlantic provinces and seeing what their rates of transmission were, it uh, made it made it difficult to, you know, to justify not allowing some travel between because their risk was essentially as low as ours was, right? Mm-hmm. 
So, um, yeah, so that's why we allowed the Atlantic Bubble. The Chief Medical Officers of Health had discussions about it beforehand. We provided our advice to the governments, and uh, and we've gotten to where we are right now. So. Good, good. Okay, so one more question on the guidelines. Um, we've been set up guidelines for each one of the different business units or sectors. Uh, how do you determine those? Are they based in, in uh, uh, best practices somewhere else? Like, I think that is clarity for people to understand why do they have to go somewhere that's 50% full, for example, for a restaurant. It's difficult because, again, I think people see how things apply to them and, and it's not always having that benefit of the bigger picture. And, and so we look at, you know, what's our risk? And I've said many times it's people, space, time, and place. So the more people you see uh, or are in contact with, the the bigger your space and the more physical distancing is allowed is important. Um, the more time you spend with somebody means that the risk is higher. So we want to keep our, our contacts as short as possible and then outdoors versus indoors, right? So there's that is sort of the basis of our guidelines and, and when we develop those guidelines, we base them on public health practice, we base them on uh, some of the guidelines that, you know, that has been uh, developed at this special advisory committee and the technical advisory committee that comes out of that. Um, they provide uh, advice and evidence about, you know, what's, what's considered acceptable. Um, we look to other jurisdictions and what they have done um, to see that we're maintaining consistency as well as much as we can across the provinces and you know different provinces are in different places um, there's different um, um, political milieus and and so all of that has to go in consideration mm -hmm. when these uh, when these decisions get made it's not as simple as um, it's decision X and it's always X regardless yes. of where you are right so mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, of things that that go into consideration for why we might have something different than another province but we try as much as possible to maintain consistency and you know basic public health guidance goes into that but you know then then it's what people do with that guidance as well so well, that's actually <laughs> the next point as at the beginning of this show we talked to an infectious disease expert in uh, Brazil and then we spoke to an ICU nurse in Texas and in a lot of places there is a divide between politics and public health but Canada's actually been featured on CNN recently about how regardless of party lines public health has been helping guide the direction of the province now that we have this uniformity that allows consistency, what's the role of the public when it comes to their part going forward? I, the public, I think, up to this point, has been uh, quite good at following what we need to do. You know, and when we were in the throes of what was happening, when we had our big outbreak, and I, I think, you know, I came on I, uh, March 25th. I found my speaking notes from that day, the other day, when I was cleaning off my desk, and that was the day that we announced 32 cases. And I remember, uh, you know, what a day that was. That was, you know, we we were. Uh, it was a bit nerve-wracking for everybody, I think, and um, it was early on. People were scared, and I think it, it was much, it was easier, I think, for people to do what needed to be done because there was that fear, because there was that unknown. Uh, now we've been dealing with it a little bit more, and uh, we're not seeing any cases. We've had not a lot of cases for a long time, and so people are thinking, okay, it's good, we're safe, and, and so we tend to let things slip and, and let things go a little bit. So we we have closer contact than we normally would, or we see people who we wouldn't normally see, and um, and, and it's hard to keep up that level of, of distancing and, and all of that that we, we've been asking people to do. But, you know, it's not, you only have to look elsewhere in the world and, and south of our border, unfortunately, uh, 
to see what can be happening with COVID and, and uh, it wouldn't take a lot, really, a lot to change uh, for us here, uh, for us to see something similar to that. And, and you know, we don't want that to happen. So it's really important that the public still say, stay vigilant when it comes to washing your hands, maintaining physical distancing, uh, making sure that you keep your number of contacts outside of your household and your bubble as low as possible, wear a mask when you're out in public and you can't physically distance. You know, all of those things are still so vitally important for keeping this um, this virus at bay and and it's really important for the public to understand that even though we're at a period of low prevalence right now that could change and this is your time to learn how to do all that stuff well uh, without uh, you know while we're in that period of, of low prevalence right so practice wearing your mask going out in public how do I do this so you know uh, when you're in a, a time when it is more important to do that um, which almost certainly will happen I, I don't want to be uh, you know uh, the bear bad news or, or uh, uh, Debbie Downer or whatever but you know it's gonna it's it's almost certainly that we're gonna see this again so we do have to be prepared that that's gonna happen and and the more you get used to doing these things now the better uh, the better prepared you'll be to deal with them habits take a long time to yeah form. they they absolutely do and and we need to normalize that you know wearing a mask on the bus yeah. Um, and uh, wearing a mask when you're out at the store and, and it's a little crowded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's not crowded, if you're able to maintain physical distancing at this point, we would say that's okay. And that's why we haven't mandated masks. But, um, and I know that's a question that people ask a lot. Mm. But uh, I think, you know, there could come a time when, when people have to wear their mask when they're out in public. Because if we don't, then we, the option may be that we have to... Uh, do something similar to what we did before when we locked down. And right. We don't want to have to go there if we can avoid it. Uh, so, Dr. Fitzgerald, why is it important that we all do our part? Because it, it's not going to work if we don't all do our part, quite simply. Uh, you know, we all have a role to play in making sure that COVID-19 is uh, contained within our province and within our country. Uh, we want to be able to keep things open. We want life to be able to go on as much as possible within within the bounds of, of this what this virus has done to us, I suppose, as a as a society. But um, I think if we don't all have that part to play or if we don't all play our part, it's it, it's gonna be very difficult for us to contain the spread of this virus. And so I think it is important for us all to do our part as much as we possibly can. I recognize that you know, not everybody has the same um, ability to be able to do things that need to be done, but but as much as possible. And you know, public health wants to support people as much as possible in their actions and uh, to try to make the, the right choice, the easy choice, as much as possible. Um, so uh, yeah, it is important to try to adhere to the guidance as much as possible. Such an important message. Um, is there anything you'd want to leave the audience with as we sort of clue up our chat? For those Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are listening, I, I want to first of all say thank you for for listening to public health and for following the guidance and continuing to do so um, to business owners and you know sports teams and all of these groups who who have been diligent in trying to follow the guidelines as best as they can it has been very important and i know it's been a really really long road and and that people are tired and um you know this is is getting on their last nerve i told i do get it and and so uh to that people are continuing to abide by those guidelines has 
um, is incredible. So I really do want to thank people and, and to say that unfortunately this fight is not over and we are still uh, we are still in it. We still need to follow those guidelines and we will for the foreseeable future. Uh, but that we've learned a lot and our health system capacity is good and can respond. And so we don't need to live in fear. We just need to live armed with the knowledge that you know now we have science and experience to support us. And uh, if we keep following those guidelines, I think we'll do okay. That's great. Well, thank you to you and your team for all the work you're doing. And thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. Over the last few days, President Bolsonaro, who has consistently downplayed the severity of the pandemic, has tested positive for COVID-19. And despite the surge in cases in the USA, President Trump is pressuring governors to open schools in the fall while continuing to ignore public health advice, going so far as to hold additional campaign rallies for his supporters. In Canada, Ontario has mandated the use of masks in public, while discussions around potential mask mandates are ongoing across several provinces in our country. It's very clear this pandemic isn't over, even though we haven't felt its effects in Newfoundland and Labrador for over a month. I hope today's episode reminds us all to follow our public health guidelines so we can take care of each other, because that's what we do here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Today's show was produced and engineered by VOCM and Richard Sepka. I'm Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you next week for another episode of the Health and Wellness Show on your VOCM.